Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? Is everything all right? How was your week? Look, okay, look, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Craig, why did you lie to me? Why, Craig, did you say last week on your intro that this week's episode, episode 64, was going to be with Natasha Dimitriou? Why am I looking now? And it's Ralph Little. There's nothing wrong with that. It's an absolutely brilliant episode and you're going to love it. Trust me. But Craig, why did you say that to me? Well, at the time, it was true, honestly. Um, I went to upload Natasha's episode that I recorded on my handheld voice recorder when I was in London. And I went through all the usual channels. I upload it, I whack it onto the computer, put it into our Dropbox, get it over to producer Griff. We both looked for it. It's gone. It's disappeared. We can't get it back. We've tried. So look... All is not lost. Well, that episode is that that that's buggered. That's gone. That's never coming back. But the great thing is, Natasha is back from LA in uh, December at Christmas. So we're going to re-record an episode with her in January sometime. In fact, funnily enough, she's out there right now recording a new series with past Two Shot podcast Matt Berry. They are recording a series of the Taika Waititi film, What We Do in the Shadows, um, which will be coming out, I think, early next year. So that'll be really exciting. So I'm really sorry. I didn't lie to you. It was the truth at the time. I just wanted to explain why you look on your feed on Monday and you go, oh, it's Ralph Little. So here's the thing. Uh, What is the thing? The thing is, yes, it's Ralph Little. So a few months ago... We got asked to be part of the first ever Manchester Podcast Festival, which uh, we were really very, very chuffed about. We love Manchester. We've recorded lots there. And to be part of uh, the first ever podcast festival was was a real honour. You know, some great podcasts there. Richard Herring was there. Sophie Hagen was there. I think The Guilty Feminist was there. So to be uh, alongside those very established heavy hitters, was uh, was yeah was a joy. So who do we get? Who do we get for the first Manchester Podcast Festival? Did I say Manchester? I said Manchester Manchester Podcast Festival. Um, and I thought Ralph Little would be a very good guest, and it turns out he wasn't a good guest. He was a fantastic guest, and you're going to hear more about that any minute now. I just want to do a thank you to somebody because you know I always say about rating and writing reviews and things like that and it means absolutely loads to us. Uh, Not just to us like personally, it it spreads the words, it gets us up the charts and it means that more people get to listen which is a real big thing for us. But uh, Mo Mashati I want to say a massive thank you to you. But if you're on Twitter, you follow us on Twitter, you might have seen a video that she posted this week um, talking about her favourite podcasts. And there were two that that she really 
listen to um, week in, week out. And we were one of them. And she was very eloquent and passionate with what she said in the video. So, Mo, I know you're listening. I want to say thank you very, very much. And it, honestly, it's very much appreciated. Um, so there we have it. Episode 64. We jumped in the motor to the first ever Manchester Podcast Festival. A big shout out to them. Massive thank you to those guys for uh, just inviting us on. I mean, it, it was a brilliant, brilliant night. Lovely audience, some familiar faces, some new friends, um, and we all had a cracking night. Now, it went on. Now, so when you go to a live podcast festival, um, we're told, look, you, you have an hour, and, and that's great, that's fine. I said, look, if it goes on, because I, I don't like to stop if things are on a, on a roll and if we're, you know, in the flow, so to speak. And they said, it's fine, it's fine, don't worry, you can go over. Yeah, we went over quite a lot. Um, so much so that I had to stop it at a certain point because, uh, you know, even Ralph had to stop and, and go for a pee. Um, so we're going to do a part two, but probably not till uh, January or February of next year. We're going to pick up because there's still loads to talk about. Um, we only skim the surface. But look, there's a lot of surface to skim. Um, Ralph's a great guest. Um, he's very honest in where he was and where he is now. Um, and the audience loved it. They really did. It was great. We all got involved. It was fantastic, fantastic night. So if you were there and you came, big shout out to you and lots of love for coming because um, it was great. And I know I spoke to quite a few of you afterwards so it's always nice to get that immediate feedback, which is why I love the live experience. Um, right, I'm going to stop saying um, and let's get on with it. This is episode 64 of the Two Shot Podcast with Mr. Ralph Little, live from the first ever Manchester Podcast Festival. I'll see you at the end. <laughs> Clap your hands off like a bastard. It's Ralph Little! Oh, he's here. Ralph Little, everybody. Because it was touch and go for a time. He might have been away. He might not have been. I said, I need you in Manchester. Um, it's just me trying to pretend to be busy. No, he's not one of those. That's funny, you know, when actors say, uh, you know, when they say, what are you doing? He say, uh, oh, I well, I'm doing something, but I can't talk to you about it. I can't, I can't tell you. There's two things. It's true, or they're doing absolutely fuck all. It's 99% the second one. Uh, I would Usually, say so. I would say, anybody saying, oh, yeah, I've got this thing, but I can't talk about it. You've got fuck all going on. <laughs> I ain't Let's saying that. And I have had to say that a few times, and it's been genuinely true. I don't care. I, I'm all right being out of work. I've got a podcast to do. Do you know what I mean? It's not our work, is it? You're fucking nailing it. Well, it's just, it's just <laughs> something that's very kind. Sorry, I get a bit shy when people give compliments. Because <laughs> when I was thinking about you, I was actually thinking about... Um, Thomas Turgus, and I'll tell you for why. Because when... Do you listen to Tomo's podcast? Yeah. yeah. And I was thinking, well, Tomo grew up... 
grew up on screen, really, because you started out as a kid. And then when I was reading that Guardian article, I was thinking about you. And in a way, you're the other person. I, I feel, certainly from watching you, I know I'm a little bit older than you, but I feel you've done that, grown up in front of an audience. Does it feel like that? Yeah, it depends how you define growing up. I mean, Tommy was, what, um, 10, 11? Oh, I, like yeah. That. I mean, he was a, he was a kid. Uh, yes. Um, it depends how you define a kid. I mean, I was 17 when I did the first Were one. You're 17? Now I would define that as being a child. But I definitely, at 17, 18, thought I was like the big man. Um, even though I so wasn't in every possible respect. But, um, yeah, so I did the first Royal Family when I was 17. And um, it came out when I was 18... Uh, September 98 it came out I'd just started university literally across the road at uh, the Stopford building at Manchester Medical School and um, it came out the same week as I started university and uh, talk about a, a crossroads in life <laughs> <laughs> you know, do I carry on with this five years of study minimum to go and be a doctor or yeah. do I just uh, sack it off to have loads of fun but enter the unpredictable and slightly terrifying world of trying to be a professional actor um, and I just went with the fun well, as you and it's kind of worked out, to be fair. Well, we've had a lot of bit of fun in our lives, don't we? Yeah. Life's hard enough as it is. 20 years ago, just over 20 years ago, the first Royal Family came out now. I have no fucking idea where that went. That is so long. It's so funny you say that you were, you were that age, because I always see you as a, like, as a lot younger, but I suppose it's because of that dynamic of that family. Yeah. They've got such different age brackets. Well, I mean, I, I always, I was like... It helped that I was probably partly why I was cast was because I was very young. Like, up until I was at 18, I looked a good two or three years younger than uh, I was. I was one of those teenagers that was like always quite short until I had a growth spurt and always looked really young, which, um, which was great for casting, but terrible for girls. For life. For trying to, <laughs> like, I have a tragic... Um, uh, track record as a teenager of like you know when like everything's so when parties start to happen and house parties start to happen and uh, yeah my strike weight was, rate was extremely low um, <laughs> up until I was on telly <laughs> when it all changed <laughs> because uh, we're all fickle did you abuse that power Ralph? I mean again it depends on your definition not in a Brett Kavanaugh kind of way certainly uh, but <laughs> not a political podcast not political <laughs> no I don't think I abused that privilege but um I think I enjoyed it. Actually, sure, you probably you were a young man. Well, yeah. I'm, I, you know what? The truth is... Not that you're old now, by the way. <laughs> you know, it's fine. The truth is... Christ, we're getting into deep territory very quickly, but... Um, we always do. Yes. Well, I, I think I behaved in a way that any 18 to 25-year-old would have done, uh, young guy would have done, with the opportunities that were afforded to somebody who was a bit recognisable. So all it really meant was that you had that, that first moment to go and approach uh, a, a girl to, to chat her up. That, that was done for you. You didn't have yeah. to think of something to say because if they kind of knew who you were, you were, already, you were already able to talk to them. So then like the rest of it took care of itself. But I didn't behave in any way that was unusual. But um, I think I was portrayed in the media at the time as somebody who was very much kind of a party boy and was out and, uh, all the time, which I kind of was, but no, no more so than anyone else that was my age. In what and way? I, I don't remember you being portrayed in... Or well, certainly I didn't read those papers. Well, uh, yeah, that might be... <laughs> well, uh, about once a week there was a story in either The Sun or The Mirror or one of those types of papers. There was a story in a tabloid about... Um, you know, nothing major. Not, not one major story, but just throughout all that sort of period of time... It would be a story like, oh, um, you, you're always reported as though you're, you're, you are your character. 
That's what they did as well. Yeah. So if you played like a cool character, then you were quids in. But if you played like the gawky kid from the royal family, and then the sort of even gawkier kid from Two Pints, then that's how you were portrayed. So um, yeah, we're pretty much fucked, mate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Tell me about it. So I. Um, very much everything about... <laughs> Less of that. Somebody enjoyed that too much. <laughs> yeah, every article was just very much about going, um, oh, um, uh, 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 gawky teen, gawky Anthony Ross seen trying to chat up some uninterested girl. Uh, uh, what was she... Th- but then she seemed to leave with him. What was she thinking? I'm like, you fucked me coming and going there. <laughs> I was in trouble for, like, are you taking the piss out of me for talking to her? And then when I succeeded, now you're taking the piss out of me as well. So it was, it was just like this little chipping away of... I was very aware. About one, literally about once a week, there was some sort of um, story about, like, an eye-rolly kind of slightly snidey yeah. look at this dickhead. It's who does he think he is? Did yeah, they- I mean, it was, it was pretty... It was, I mean, you know, it wasn't devastatingly sad, but it was well, annoying. did it get to you? Because that chipping away... Well, it did... I mean, it got to you in as far as... I don't know if you remember from those times, but there was a myth that we all... By we, I mean, like, everyone in the industry. There was a myth that we all believed and perpetuated by saying it to each other, which is that they have eyes everywhere. Somebody's always in the, on the payroll. Somebody on the... You know, every doorman or barman or somebody in the street or every shop that you know somebody will sell a story on you and that's the myth they perpetuate and you, you look back now and you go the finances don't they can't have that many people on the payroll it's mm. absolutely insane and what it was was um, phone hacking I was being I was being phone hacked really yeah yeah systematically for about um, 98 to 2010 how did you find out that you were hacked um I was approached by... Well, what happens is... I'm, I have to be quite careful about everything I talk about because there are, there's, a, there's been a legal settlement, so I... What goes on in this room stays yeah, in yeah, this exactly. room. Don't tell anybody it about any of this, It doesn't necessarily okay? go out on the episode. You know that. All guests have full editorial control, and I'll have control, and I'll fa- I've got all your addresses, so don't... And yours. Yeah. Plus, um, we're hacking your phones so we know if you tell anybody about it. They say, know they say podcast festival. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but go on. See, whatever you can say. I don't want to... Do no, no. So, um, take you down a dark I mean, I can alley. actually say quite a lot because it's, because it's, in, uh, it's a matter of public record now, a lot of it. So as long mm. as I don't go into any detail about certain things, fine. But um, about... So the way it worked was Leveson Inquiry happened. And the whole story broke. And uh, several test cases such as... Steve Coogan, Hugh Grant, and all that kind of thing, they, they went through this large court case, mm. and they were found in favour of and it went very, very badly for, um, in particular, for Mirror Group and uh, News Group, which is the sun and the mirror. Um, and uh, so what happened was, so there wasn't like almost a run on the courts, uh, the system by which they decided to bring cases was that um, wh- whoever had a case, they would fi- they would, that case would finish, but then whoever like, had a case against or thought they might have been phone hacked, they would have to disclose their information, their phone number, and they would have to disclose several associates, so people that they worked with that they also thought might have been hacked. Right. And that leads to a domino effect, because if they find that somebody was, then you speak to that person, your friend or whoever. Like, we didn't work together in 2001, but say I, we did, I might have rung you and go, do you remember anything weird happening, like something that you thought was private but that seemed to make it into the paper? And you go, oh, yeah, so they'd search your phone number, and if you were hacked you would then have a case and you'd be... So there's this whole domino effect. So I was... Um, 
I don't know if I can, I'm sure I can mention him, but somebody I worked with very closely for many okay. years yeah. uh, rung me up and went, mate, you were phone hacked for about 10 years, apparently. Do you want to take a case? And I was like, you're fucking right, I do. Yeah. Um, so I did. And it was, it was bittersweet, actually. It was a bittersweet. Uh, in what way? It was bittersweet in as far as, it was sweet in as far as going, great, I can, you know, sue some people who deserve it. And, yeah. Uh, and they, they owe me and they need to be punished and it's a nice bit of cash that I never wasn't expecting. Um, but it was bittersweet in as far as I genuinely still feel a little that those years from when I was in the coolest show on television when I was 18 years old, I think it's fair to say. You know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think that there was, a, I was, there was a perception that was perpetuated by... Um, tabloids that made me look a little lightweight uh, at that time. What do you mean by that? Well, frivolous, you know, not to be taken seriously, a bit of a lad about town kind of thing, which, to be fair, I t- totally was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I had a great time. But, um, yeah, I-, I think that it didn't... You know, look, the fact is you hope that people within the industry and casting directors and producers, you hope that they don't pay attention to any of that kind of thing, but these things filter into people's consciousness. You know, and... and um, this, I should point out at this point, it sounds absolutely like I'm having a massive whinge. I've had a 20-year career and I'm delighted with it. So I'm not, you know, it's not like, boo, I could have been a contender. But um, I do wonder about the, the way I was... I did I had a, a, my first professional play in 2002 with... Um, what, he's, he's in here, actually, today, Will Ash. Uh, Will, say hello. hello. Uh, there he is. Um, Past that two-shot podcast, <laughs> <Will Ash. laughs> Uh, yeah, he can be your next guest. He's got some great stories. I've had him um, on. I've, I've done him. <laughs> all right, gone. okay. You've had him on, have you? Um, Love you, the one, Yeah, it was the one no one listened to. Um, so, yeah, and, and, you know, I was 22 and I was still... I'd be, inter- I'd be interested to know what he thinks about it, but um, I was kind of like the, the sort of silly little... Partly because of the parts that I played and partly because of the way I was reported. And I do think, possibly, if I'd have just been left alone and allowed to get on with my career... It might have. It's taken me. It's taken me about fifteen years to move away from from that frivolous, silly little kid. Do you think uh, image? And I'm I'm nearly fucking forty. Do you think because you were painted in that light that you played up to to what they sort of painted you as in a way? That's that's a good question. Maybe. Part, you know, I wish I, it'd be easy to say no, but more possibly not as honest as it could be, a, a little bit, not, not to the press or not to, but like, I don't know, sometimes you just had to, it's weird, you just had to let it wash over you. I was talking to Will Meadow about this and it was like, we, we had to just let things wash over. Everybody did, everybody who was being reported on in any kind of way like this, you just had to go, oh, well, that's the game that we're in. Uh, you know, they've got eyes everywhere and every week you just, and it wasn't until you sit with the lawyer like a year and a half ago and you read story after story, and none of them are sitting, none of them are like accusing you of anything major. But, but just you read them, and you just cumulatively go in. You fucked me. Yeah, you did. You really fucked. And and I wish I could almost sit here and go, oh, and they really targeted me. But in a way, it's even worse. It was just arbitrary. But I was just there. Things like that seep into people's consciousness. That's if it, exactly. If it is chipped away, and it's neither one. It's not like this huge scandal. Yeah, but it's not. It's something else. So I got with I, my, I got with a girlfriend, and, and that 
actor, actress, actor, female actor, whatever you... I don't know. <laughs> no, no one's quite sure what you're supposed to say. I don't know. Say. Well, I, it's funny you say Plenty that of actor, female actor, actresses I know don't I, know what they want to... <laughs> so. It's true. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I, I just say actor. Just yeah, exactly. As long as we can just like... agree on a consensus, I'm fine with it. Um, but anyway, I, I uh, started going out with a female actor um, in 2008, and uh, she said, oh, I'm, I'm stopping Ralph Little. And her brother said... Oh, he's top, apparently he's a top guy. Bit of a party boy, though, isn't he? And she said, why do, you, why do you say that? And he went, I don't know. I just kind of I just got that idea. And uh, that kind of thing, two or three times, that kind of thing has happened. Yeah. And it, that was just my girlfriend's brother, you know, is just a member of the public. But I've heard it from, you know, producers, casting directors as well, who were always a little bit surprised to meet me and go, oh, you're not just... You're some... not what I thought. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Well, I have, I have a bit of evidence. Well... Yeah, I mean no, I mean them. You know, if you're yeah. gonna label somebody like that, especially a lad, I, I mean, it's such a, I don't such a silly, you, nasty phrase. I, I mean, it, I think the whole the whole phone hacking thing has has changed. It was certainly changing for me. I, I don't know. I think that people have to be more careful about what they report now um, and about the way they talk about actors. I don't know. It might just be that like no one's really gives a shit about what I'm up to anymore, largely because most of what I'm up to these days is just going home and just watching the TV um, and playing the Xbox. <laughs> Probably not best to come on a podcast and be dead open and honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I want to go right back, as we kind of tend to do on this journey. Sure. Um, the Oldham you were born in? I was born in Oldham, but, um, you know, sorry to any Oldham listeners, but that sort of ties in there, really. I was born born in Oldham, raised in Bury. In Bury. And um, I went to school in Bolton, so I'm like, this is just amalgamation of... And then pretended to be from Manchester. <laughs> well, <laughs> like anyone from that generation did. I was 15, I was 16 in 1996, right? Hey, I was from Blackpool. I pretended to be of from Manchester. Of course you did. Of course you did. Of course you did. I chatted I to... I, I chatted, told you my kicker story, you've all heard Yes. Yeah. I chatted to... Um, I, well, I, we, can, we can be honest and drop names. So I chatted to Noel Gallagher about this, right? And I said, uh, clunk. Whoa. Somebody, mind your toes, mate. I just dropped that one. Um, I chatted to Noel Gallagher about I this. I feel there's more to come. And I said, well... Um, well, uh, you know, being from Manchester, and he went, hey, wait, let me stop you there. What fucking postcode? <laughs> oh, is that particular? And I went, yeah. He uh, was for that particular. And I said, well, from Berry, actually. He went, it's just about acceptable. Ooh. And I said, what's the criteria? He goes, there was a time when I used to carry a Manchester A to Z round of pocket one. And he said, any time anybody said they were from Manchester, he'd get out of the A to Z and go, point to your fucking street. <laughs> <laughs> I think Noel has a lot to talk about. He needs to come on the podcast. We need to sort that out. Mate, That's odd behaviour. No, he can do what he wants, mate. That's, That's great. True. That is class. My other Noel Gallagher story, which is fucking shameful, but now that we've mentioned him, <laughs> if, my, uh, if now that we've mentioned him, my mates won't forgive me if I don't own up to this. So I've been a, a lifelong United fan. Um, yeah, 20 years, uh, it was great, and now it's really painful. <laughs> oh, that's what supporting a football team's like. Um, so, um, yeah, I've been a lifelong United fan, and about, I don't know what, best part of 10 years ago, I was at an Oasis gig, and I'd met Liam a couple of times. And, you know, I was, I was 16 in 1996, and from Bury, or quote-unquote Manchester. So, like, you know, they were the kings of the world. I was, that was my yeah. formative musical years, right? So Manchester was, like, centre of the world and everything. And, um, and my two heroes had been Ryan Giggs um, and Noel Gallagher. 
And so I met, uh, I'd, I'd met Noel uh, after this gig, and we'd happened to sort of blag like little backstage thing and, and, and then the party was in his dressing room and I walked up to his dressing room and there was security on his dressing room even if you were backstage I'm like, oh fucking hell I don't know how this is going to go you're desperately hoping the security guard recognises you because if you don't I've n- I'm never ever going to go do you know who I am because that's A too embarrassing and B invariably they don't so um, I walked up and I was like <clears throat> I am eight to the security guard and he went to say something and Noel Gallagher happened to be stood right behind him. He taps the security guard on the shoulder and goes, hey, I know who he is, he's all right. And I was like, this is pretty much the greatest moment of my life. <laughs> so, so I walked in and we're chatting to Noel and there's me and a couple of mates around, um, Man United fans. And I'm like, we're chatting away. And you know you meet somebody who you, is a bit of a hero of yours and you, you try to kind of like you with me now. And you're trying to... <laughs> you, you're trying to... Yeah, yeah fair enough. You're trying to sort of find something funny to say. You're trying to not be too busy, don't be too keen. Yeah. But, you know, say a couple of funny things and not be, like, tongue-tied, not ask the usual boring questions. And I made him laugh a couple of times. He said, oh, you all right? Yeah. I was like, yes, nailing it. And I'm so, like, oh, carried away and hanging on kind of everywhere. And, like, I'm really adrenaline's pumping. And he just goes, um, it just came out so naturally. He just goes, so um, are you a blue or a red? And I went, uh, blue. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm a red. And it was the most embarrassing moment of my fucking life because I spent my entire life supporting Man United and when push come to shove I fucking dropped it like a sack of shit <laughs> anything no you're a blue aren't you whatever you want me to be it's absolutely fine um, luckily I sort of admitted straight away that uh, I was lying but um, yeah my mates have never let me forget it tell me Oldham to Berry. why why, did, why would you move there Oh no! I, I, I just—I was literally just born in Oldham. My mum went. To, I don't. It's more a question of why did my mum decide to go to Oldham Hospital in Berry? I have no idea. Right. <laughs> she's, she's an eccentric woman. Oh right. So you're already you're already there in Berry. Yeah. Yeah. No. I was literally all... born in Oldham. Right. And then, okay. And then, and then carried home in in a cot to Berry. That's pretty much my Oldham connection finished. Um, yeah. And then just grew up in Berry. So yeah. tell me tell me about growing up in Berry. Apart from the black pudding, we don't want any black pudding stories. Even though it's fantastic, I'm a big fan. Yeah, yeah, boiled black pudding from Berry Market—it's it's a thing. Um, uh, growing up in Berry, well, uh, so it's you, your mum, your dad. Yeah, uh, uh, two sisters, and then a younger brother, ten years older, ten years younger than me. Eventually, so growing up in Berry was—I um, have uh, my mum's a real character. Um, in what uh, way? She just. Um, She's first, she's working class, from a working class family, my grandparents, her mum and dad, um, working class, but like self-educated. My gran was one of ten, worked three jobs to put my mum through Berry Grammar School. So my mum's first generation, like, uh, private education and uh, sort of social climate, like middle class social climate from working class family and, and worked really hard to try and find a quote-unquote better life, for want of a better way of saying it. Yeah. Um, which was a real, looking back now, you know, in the f- 60s, for a, a woman in the 60s to do that, you know, I love Berry, but it wasn't a centre of opportunity for young women trying to, you know, make their way in the world. She's quite an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary woman. Um, and she just had this way of doing things, and she was obsessed with, uh, for us as kids, she was obsessed with this idea that we weren't, ever going to be the kind of kids who had nothing to do 
uh, which it's weird because I used to I used to envy. You know when you, you see like kids just hanging out of an evening and you know hanging out at a bus stop or whatever. I used to think that looked like the fucking coolest thing you could possibly imagine <laughs> because I would literally finish school and then like. She'd be picking me up in a in a, um, in, my, in a beat up old car. My dad would pick up my sisters in his beat up old car, and they'd be taken to like a swimming lesson, and I'd be taken to football training, or and like every evening was something different. And I look back now, and you know they, I've been so lucky. My parents raised me with, they spent every fucking penny they had and every spare second they had on opportunities for us, um, and it was an extraordinary way to an extraordinary. Uh, self-sacrificing way to bring up kids. And so if I had my... You know, everybody's always got issues with the way their parents... Everybody always thinks they can do it better in one way or another. Of if course. I, if I had my... If I could wave a magic wand, I wish for them that they'd had a bit of time for themselves as well. So, I, for example, I grew up near S- Ski Rossendale. Like anyone who's from around here knows about Ski Rossendale. Yeah. Before, you know, um, the chill factor in, in Manchester, before the Tamworth Snow Dome was the, was the first one, there was these dry slopes... Um, in various places around the, the, the country. And it was basically like skiing on a, on a brush. And uh, if you fell over, it'd scrape the shit out oh, of your entire... That was fucking painful, honestly, That was so I've dislocated painful. my thumb about eight times. But um, that was just one of the things that me and my siblings did because my parents had, had decided that rounded individuals should know how to ski. This sort of social climbing idea. Round. So I didn't know any difference. So I started to ski on this crap... Thing when I when it when this horrible surface, but you know I learned to ski when I was four years old at Ski Rossendale. But you know what? My parents to this day don't ski, and I just wish that they they'd have done it with you know for they'd, themselves. Have, they'd have found the time to do something together for themselves. I think if I could wave a magic wand for my parents and give them something like that, then I would have let them have some time and experiences for themselves. But they gave us everything they had. Bless them. Um, your dad's background, was he from a working class background as well? Or was he from the north? Um, yeah, he is. Um, he's from, uh, well, his dad was from Eccles originally and then grew up in um, uh, Somerset. It was near Ramsbottom, north of Bury, basically. Mm. Um, he was uh, mayor of Bury for a short time when I was young. My was he? Yeah, Tory mayor of Bury, which I don't talk about a huge amount. Um, <laughs> no, well, yeah, that's an interesting one, actually, to, to digress very quickly, but... Oh, no, we always digress on it. Yeah, Ralph, don't I mean, worry. it's all over the shop. You know, I, 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 Tory bashing—it's um, I mean, it's great fun, isn't it? Uh, and they—they uh, <laughs> <laughs> they make it so easy. But um, but you know, my granddad was a good man. He was one of the best men that you know I, I could imagine. And and that's—I don't know. You just when you stop and think about the human humanitarian, the human side of, of of politicians, depending on who they are, you think actually a lot of people are just trying to do the best they can with what they believe. But anyway, um, yeah, fuck that, fuck the Tories. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, my granddad was um, on my dad's side. Uh, they, they were both teachers. My granddad on my dad's side. So what they were was this interesting uh, working class, working class money, um, but like with te- teachers often raise their kids with sort of middle-class values, middle-class ideals, middle-class attitude. So my dad was exactly that, raised working-class money. I often think that teachers' kids are raised with working-class money and background, but middle-class aspiration. So, yeah. so that was how I was raised. I was raised with two parents who, my mum first generation kind of private educated, my dad um, raised in that way. So I was raised from very middle-class aspirational values, given all these opportunities, um, but not with a huge amount of money. Do you think that comes from, you know, from the working-class background? They go, well, I want my kids to not have what I had. I want them to 
be better than, than what we had. I so mean, it just that sort was of, it just 100% my yeah. parents' attitude to everything. Like, 100%. I keep on getting asked now, I got asked literally again today, to, to do an interview or maybe talk about or write an article in, in the, the Guardian, of course, in the Guardian, um, about, um, you know, uh, working-class voices in, in acting and, and getting into acting. And uh, I believe very passionately about that and, and I believe very passionately in it. I believe very passionately that people should just have opportunities no matter what background they're from. But I always feel a little bit hesitant to say yes to that kind of thing because I, I, I can't... I may have been raised with, like, not a huge amount of money, but with all the opportunities I was given, it would be... You know, I've I, I got a scholarship to, to get privately educated. I can't claim to be a working-class actor. That would be insulting in some way to the people who had to seek out the opportunities for themselves so i don't know again you're you you've always been portrayed as a working class and as we've established you know people (laughs) project onto you yeah the the parts that you portray yeah so i mean it's it's interesting i mean but that i think is an interesting point like the world that we live in surely it would be good to have somebody who's asked who people might listen to an opinion about the fact that working class actors should have opportunities and yet then you have to think well do I have the right to talk about I mean, I kind of think I do because I think that people should have the right to talk about it. But in the modern world, you just think, well, maybe I'm not the right person to talk about that. Maybe there's somebody else better that should. But then again, you, you kind of, the people that they do go to, excluding yourself, and you go, oh, we're asking this person about it. But yes, you may have come from that, but you're not there now, so you don't know what it's like right now. What they yeah. should probably be doing is asking that 16, 17-year-old who desperately, desperately wants to follow his dream yeah. and has fuck-all money yeah. and his dad's not at home and his mum's grafting, what's it like for you? How are you going to do it there? Yeah. Don't ask that now upper-class actor. Yeah, exactly. He's got no well, sensibility. Where, where, are, where are the opportunities for kids coming through? I mean, we talked about Oldham. Oldham Theatre Workshop was a very famous one um, yeah. that I think Will might have gone to wherever he is. Yes, he um, does. Uh, but then when I was sort of, what, 12, 13, just one started up in Bury. It's now called the Carol Godby Theatre Workshop. She'll be delighted with that plug. Um, and um, it's still going? Yeah, still going, yeah. It used to be called Whitefield Workshop, but at some point, Carol Godby obviously went, fuck this, I'm working really hard. I'm going <laughs> to name it after myself. And fair enough. Um, but, you know, it's had a lot of success stories. It's had a lot of people that have professionally gone into, um, into acting and made, and made a, a living. And, but, uh, I think, I, but but sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. So, but I made a living. But aside from that, it might have had a dozen. It might have had two dozen. It might have had fifty people over the years that have made. It's been going. Must have been going twenty five years now. It might have had fifty people that have made a successful living out of drama. But you know what? It's had hundreds of kids, thousands of kids that have been through its doors and just found an outlet for. Uh, something that there was, there was nowhere else for that, you know this was really before a lot of school schools had had sort of drama departments and all that kind of thing so you know those are the opportunities for working classes i have no idea what it's like now it's like you say those are the people we need to ask but it's really healthy that is even if those thousands of kids never ever want to do it that's really healthy for yeah. them to do Agreed. It. Exactly. things like that um shouldn't be taken out of schools i know that um our kid you go around the schools don't you dave you know, he talks to kids about, yeah. about expressing themselves. You know, this is what I do. Look at me. Look yeah. where I come from. And this is what I do now. Exactly. And it's, it's my vocation. It's my passion. So, and also, here's the thing, you know, and 
it's not just about working class kids because what it for me what it's about is although that's something that's very close and dear to my heart no you can't deny anybody education well yeah exactly we well, we talk that's about what it is this is this is how people this is where po- political discourse gets totally fucked up and it's it's because and it's difficult because rather than saying left and right let's just say good and bad good good people uh, play by the rules of debate and discourse and whether it's labeling or whatever and bad mm. people don't so you go working class kids need a chance to get into the, uh, theater or whatever and bad people will turn around and go oh that's really that's really offensive because what are you saying that middle class kids don't you know no no one's saying that everybody should have opportunities to ev- in a perfect world everyone should have opportunities to do everything but <laughs> when you look at who the marginalized groups are it makes sense to start with those first especially as they become more marginalized mm. i think it'd be fascinating uh, just this just occurred to me you're talking about you know, those are the people who should ask about who can get a chance to, to go into the, to the game. And I don't think anybody's done that, you know. Um, personally, I'm not particularly interested um, at what Christopher Eccleston actually thinks. And, and, and this is not any... I'm just picking him because I know that he's, he was in the papers at the time talking about it. I want to know how it is for them. What's going on now. What's yeah, going on yeah, right yeah, exactly. now. Because I don't care. Mm-hmm. And Christopher Eccleston is a fucking brilliant actor and I've loved him since I was a kid. So it's not a thing at all. It's, I'm just picking him out of that. I could have done another five. I thought of another five, actually. I won't say them. Um, Ricky Tomlinson, but, Sue Johnston. No, actually, I didn't think of Ricky. Although they should actually yeah. speak to Ricky because of his journey. Well, they and should. that's a very interesting Do you know journey. what I think would be really interesting, though? Why not speak to Benedict Cumberbatch? Why not speak to Tom? Well, they have. But I think if you hear those, because what I find a little bit, this is another reason why I don't particularly, I mean, I say I don't particularly like talking about it. Here we are talking about it. Mm. But um, why I've tended to avoid it is because I don't think Benedict Cumberbatch shouldn't be allowed to be a fucking brilliant actor. I think he's magnificent. And And Tom Hiddleston. Let's find, it's just that if they have more opportunity than other people, that's where there's an issue. But I certainly don't think that their careers should be either decried or denied. I think that they're super. But here's the thing. You know, you've just plucked a name there out. And Benedict Cumberbatch has grafted his Absolutely. arse off Mate, he to paid, get where paid he paid is. every single due he could have done. Absolutely. Yeah, look, great. Fantastic, great for him. He comes from a, an amazing, comfortable background where yeah, opportunities are there, right? And yeah. that's fine. But for people to go, oh, he just came out of nowhere. He didn't because I know exactly. that we kind of graduated at the, more or less the same time. And I know he was doing those yeah. tiny little parts. And also to say, oh, you know, well, he had all the opportunities so it was easy for him. It's like, no, of course it wasn't. Everybody, it's difficult. This is not an easy industry to, to work in and maintain no. a career in. And so and to come into it thinking uh, yeah. it is, but and wouldn't that it be interesting? I think it'd be interesting to talk to him about going. You know, what opportunities? I don't, I don't really know him, but I would imagine what he would say is, "Yeah, I was lucky to have these opportunities, and I think it's really important that everybody gets them." So you know, what I'm not into is this so-called sort of posh bashing. Just That's because, what I'm talking about. Just yeah. because, you know, I'm from the north. I'm very proud of being from the north, and. You know, somebody said, um, I'm slightly digressing, but I'm not. Somebody uh, said on Twitter the other day, uh, and I didn't respond, 
Here's what happens when I'm on Twitter. If somebody says something, and we're very lucky, people are genuinely very, very nice. Um, but if somebody says something slightly cutting or a bit nasty, you know what it's like. What I do is Griff always goes, do not respond. <laughs> do not respond, because he knows what I'm like, and I'll fucking savage him. And then I'll probably get myself banned, and that's t- terrible for everybody. Not everybody, probably just me and him. Um, what I do is I... Um, Tweet out what, what's actually going on in my mind, what I would really want to say, and then I take a screenshot and I send it him, and he goes, yeah, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking do not say that. But I feel better having said it, and, you know, because I felt like I've got it out of my system. Mute and block, mute and block, mute and block. Um, what I do is I just fucking batter him and then mute him anyway. Yeah, you, this, is, this is true, what I'm <laughs> yeah. sure we'll talk but about. But I've later. stopped doing that a lot now. It's, I just I don't, know if, I don't know if it makes any difference. I don't know how healthy it is. Just, but I think it's like anything. I think it's how you use it. I mean, I was talking to you before in the bar. The only reason that I went back on social media was because uh, me and Griff were starting the podcast and... You know, every, I'm sure loads of people wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. So we use it as a great tool, and it's great to connect and talk to people about what what they think of it. So I just see it as that. But where did I go? What was I talking about before I digressed into social media? Posh bashing. That's it. So yeah, yeah, we fucking hate them. Don't, oh, sorry, we it's can't. Different, uh... That's another podcast. <laughs> no, we can't. We can't do that really. Um, but I was asked. To do, and I may have spoken about this before, ages ago, I was asked to be part of this, this working class talk um, in London. And there was lots of different people on the panel. And there were certain people in the audience. And um, they were very angry. There was an injustice. And I think that's what we've got to be careful of. Because if you come, come at these things with this anger and this injustice, then, and forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but I think it's really important, the people, those people up there who open those doors and allow certain things go, told you, told you, that's, that's exactly what I mean. That's it. So you have to approach things with a sensible discussion, a conversation, instead yeah. of going in there with going, do you know what, I didn't have this, I didn't have, well, just, Let's just discuss this. We can get somewhere quicker and easier I mean, and calmer. I, th- I think the process should be something along... For anything, for anything. The process mm. should be something along the lines of protest, discussion, solution. You know? It, I think it should. And protest is okay as long as it goes somewhere. So if there's a you know, protest about... You know, there are no working-class opportunities anymore for people trying to get into acting. Okay, protest heard. Let's discuss this. Figure out how to change that. Figure out how to make that work and then find a solution. My worry about Twitter, one of the reasons why I've stopped, because I didn't even think I was political. I never thought I was politically minded at all. And then I started giving it tons on Twitter. And now I'm like, why the fuck have I become the de facto (laughs) spokesman for NHS protest? I didn't mean that. Um, um, But people never want to... People don't want to, to discuss anything. It's so binary, Twitter. Or I, I don't know, but that's the main thing I'm on. So I don't really know about social media as a whole, but it's so binary. It's why, it's why you know, hacking um, uh, Russian hackers or, or bots and all that kind of thing are so successful. Because all they need to do is just promote this mm. uh, cyclical uh, n- non-discourse. They just need to have one side saying this and one side saying that. 
Um, and actually, I read, read an article recently that was saying, in terms of kind of Russian hacking and all that kind of thing, they don't even need to necessarily promote their point of view. All they need to promote is this extreme uh, dichotomy about people just arguing different points of view, because they know that as long as argument perpetuates itself, then nothing ever gets resolved. I mean, it's genius. It's actually genius. Um, you, know, who, you can't have a disc- you can't have a debate. No, nobody, with, with nobody's interested. Nobody's interested. Look, I've been on the end of two Twitter like shitstorm scandals that have come my way. One I asked for, and one I didn't. And um, on both of them, nobody wanted to have a conversation to further the discussion. Fucking no one. And both discussions could have been furthered. One, we could have had a really serious and important chat about mental health. And two, we could have had a really serious and important chat about um, colorblind casting and the way that casting processes work. And you know what? Fuck all got achieved on both. Just massive, huge hysteria, social media hysteria, and nothing got achieved. I would have been fucking delighted if I'd have made some mistake, said something that I didn't mean or didn't stand by, and then the, the, the result of it was to go, okay, you know what, my mistake, let's sit and talk about it. Let's have a panel, let's fucking figure this out and make sure that there's like a, you know, a proper investigation into how these things are dealt with in the future. Never but also, happened. But also Never you, happened. You can't, if you'd have said that on Twitter, written down, that could have, somebody could have taken that another way. They could, oh, that sounds like sarcasm. You can't express exactly what you mean. I mean, it's, it, it is redundant in that respect, I yeah, think. Yeah, I know. It's not for nuance, is it, Twitter? Do you, I mean, do you ever, do you, does anybody follow David Baddiel on Twitter? Yeah. 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 I mean, he just, just, <laughs> just takes them down and takes great pleasure. And now his new show is all about trolls on Twitter. So all these people that are bombarding him with awful, awful stuff, it, it, that's his show. They've made his show. Well, you look, about, look at Gervais, you know, Gervais's entire Humanity, Joyce's entire humanity yeah. show is pretty much him going through a greatest hits of his tweets. Which is and brilliant. It's, it's fucking, it's like, oh, all right, way to monetize that. 40 million from Netflix. It's like, who, who wins? You know? Start an argument on Twitter and do a, a stand up show, and there you yeah, go. There you go. That's free. Um, I was saying to, um, I met up with Griff this afternoon, and we came here and saw this, and it's all fantastic. And uh, then we. We went into town. I went into TK Maxx. Don't bother, there wasn't any bargains. <laughs> I've always found in the Manchester TK Maxx you do get some quite good stuff. Not this week. <laughs> and I you've said, got to give yourself a good two hours to sift through it. Though, I wasn't you? in the mood. Yeah, mate. that's got why. To be in the, zone. That's the Birmingham why. one used to yeah. be absolutely fucking brilliant. If you're in the zone, though, you're in there going, shit, shit, shit. Oh, yeah. no way. Fucking superb. That should have been 800 quid. It's 30. Thank you. I love it. Give me two. But you need two hours. Yeah, I know. I didn't Minimum. have it. And I was saying to uh, Griff, I went, I've got a feeling that Ralph was. Um, a very good pupil at school. <laughs> and not only a good pupil, but an academic pupil. A smart, <clears throat> smart pupil. Why did you think that? I don't know. I don't know. There was just something in me. So I'd be v- I, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued to know if I'm right. Yes. <laughs> yes, you're right. Um, I, um, I've never been a rebel. I've never felt particularly rebellious. Um, but I'm fucking lazy. I'm lazy. So I never did the homework until, you know, I, I did do the homework, but I did the homework on the bus and on the way, you know, with the shaky fucking handwriting where and yeah. I sort of like blagged it and all that kind of thing. But do you but think yeah. because, you, because you were smart, 
you were lazy because you knew that you could do it. It's terrible, isn't it? When you know you can get away with stuff, you get away with it. And, um, yeah, if I'd have been... Uh, I, even now, I think, if I'd have been more diligent, not just at school, but in life, I'm sure I could have done a lot better than, I'm, than I've done. <laughs> like, but I, I say that to people and people go, you know, but you were in this and you wrote this and you did that and you did that. And I'm like, yeah, but I hated or I liked it. <laughs> I didn't really want to. I'm just kind of lazy. Like, put it this way, right? So I, I, I write a bit now. I wrote, I wrote a show in 2010? 2010. So you can't be lazy when you're writing. You'd be amazed. I can. <laughs> <laughs> I can. Right, so I started, I was like, oh, I'll give this writing thing, I'll give this writing thing a go. And I wrote it, and I gave it to Craig Cash, and Craig Cash was like, hey, Ralphie, that's pretty good, let's make it. So I was like, okay, cheers. And I was thinking, this writing thing's fucking easy. You, all you got to do is just type some right, shit and write okay. that happen. And of course it's not. Now I find that that was just pure luck and everything else I've written since. Everyone's like, no thanks. But, um, you know, people will say to me, um, oh, we'd love, a, we'd love a script of this. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an hour and it's a 90-minute script that we, that we need. Um, so how long do you need? Do you need, like, two months or three months? Like, what's the timeline? What deadline shall we give you? And I'm like, honestly, two weeks. And they're like, Two weeks? You can't write it in two weeks. And I'm like, if you give me eight weeks, I'll fuck around for six. <laughs> and then I'll write it in two weeks. I might have to stay up every night, mainlining fucking coffee. But I'll do it because I only ever did my homework last minute and everything. Which isn't to say that I couldn't do a lot better job if I actually did it diligently. But I'm just, I don't know. I genuinely think I'm naturally predisposed to laziness. It's, it's really depressing. So it's nothing... As I, I, of course, you've learned loads of things, but has nothing really changed? Can you see that line from when you were that kid on that bus doing that homework to now? Kind of, yeah. I can, actually. It's really depressing. I, you, I, I, wish, I wish I was better. You say, you say the word depressing, but you don't genuinely mean that, do you? You don't find it depressing. You don't look at yourself and go, oh, I'm, I don't think I'm achieving good, my full potential. That's a very good question. That's a very good question, because the truth is, the truth is, as an, as an actor, you'll know this, Will Ash in, in the audience knows this, and any actors listening know this. Now they'll know this as well. And now you'll know this, everybody. <laughs> um, you, the nature of being an actor, no matter how successful you are, unless you are literally going from job to job to job to job, which even the very successful amongst us aren't, you still have those periods where you're like, oh, Christ, what next, and all that kind of thing. Um, if you sit down and you go, I've not got anything on today, but I'm going to get out of the house, I'm going to go to a coffee shop, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write, out, write up an idea, I'm going to write a treat. I've got this idea about this thing, I'm going to write a one-page idea, and maybe I'll send it to my agent, or I'm just going to write a blog, or I'm going to, I don't know, do a podcast. Or, you know, I'm, if you do that, even if nothing comes of it, you go to bed that night going, I did something today, I achieved something today. I can fucking not do that. I can procrastinate. The things that I will do to avoid actually sitting down and typing, I'll clean the shelves in my kitchen. <laughs> If, except I won't do that because even that would give me a sense of well-being. <laughs> like, I, honestly, I can watch any, any old shit on telly that I could not have been less interested in. I'll watch. And you literally, it's a good question when I say depressed. I mean, no, I was, I was using it frivolously. But sometimes you can go to bed going, I achieved fucking nothing today. I could have gone to fucking work for a charity today. But I, but I didn't. And I, I'm naturally lazy. And I, I genuinely have to fight against that. And when I do fight against that, I'm a lot happier. Is I having a tidy room? Does anybody in this room, like, are you naturally tidy? Do you have a tidy room or a tidy house? See, I never did. 
And when I fucking make the effort and go, God, my house is tired, and I walk back into my house and I say, I go, wow, it's great. I'm genuinely happier. But if I can't be asked, I can't be asked, and I'm not as happy, but I still can't be asked. I'm lazy. I'm naturally lazy. It doesn't make you happy. Does it give you, do you give yourself a hard time about this? Is this something that you would want to change, but you can't be Absolutely, asked? Absolutely, yeah. Well, I go through phases. Like, I will change it, and I'll be productive, and I'll go, I've written this, and I've done this, and I've done that. And it's ridiculous because, like, your life does improve and things happen and people take meetings and things get made and then you get this job and you're satisfied with your creativity. If you want to be an actor and you want to be an artist, you're satisfied with your creativity. And other times you go, oh, I could do that. And do you know what goes hand in hand with that? You go, well, I could do that, but I can't be I'm not, in, <laughs> I'm not in the mood today. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. And what goes hand in hand with that is, why is that person doing so well? Because they fucking could be asked. <laughs> Honestly, the number of times. That's probably the thing I've learned most of all is to stop looking at other people and going, why are they doing so well? And I'm not. I think that's really important. Yeah. And, and Takes a re- while. That and not reading reviews. Oh, you don't do it. Now, um, people, there are three stages. People read reviews. People say they don't read reviews, but they, they do. And then people genuinely don't. And the people who genuinely don't, A, they're the happiest, and B, they've usually lasted the longest. It's true. I mean, this this episode is going to go out before um, next week, but next Tuesday we've got a double episode, um, and people will have listened to this at home. I'm going forward in time now. It's like Back to the Future. Um, so they've already heard this, but you won't. Um, so Nick Payne is on, who's a, a theatre writer who just wrote his first television show called Wonderlust that's on its last episode next week. It's fucking brilliant. And I was talking to him about reviews, and he went... I fucking read them all. I yeah. read them all, yeah. and I cannot stop. I Even if it's terrible, you can't, I it's, have it's to hard. read it. And he said it really affects him, yeah. but he can't stop himself. Well, from not only that, but in the modern world with Twitter and everything, it's it's harder and harder because mm. you know they're there and people oh, people ev- send them to you. Hey, mate, great review. Here's the link. Even if it's a good one, great review, mate. Here's here's the link, and you go. Well, they said it's good. I'll just have a little look. And then it'll be like, this is a five-star show. Ralph Little was fucking unbelievable. I've never seen a better performance. I wasn't entirely sure about his, uh, his haircut. And you go, oh, fucking hell, what's wrong with my hair? It's so the first thing. And that, then you go on stage the next day or you're watching a show going, they're right, my haircut was absolute shit. What was I thinking? It affects you and, and you, you're genuinely better off not. So do you read reviews? I'm somewhere in between two and three. <laughs> <laughs> I've managed to avoid it for longer than I ever used to, but I still give in. I'm, I'm, I'm desperately aiming for, for version three. Well, it's funny, and I've said, I said this on Nick Payne's um, episode, actually, but as soon as we're talking about reviews, um, is there any actors in? Oh, there's a few. Oh, yeah, you're all right. Um, Hold on, I, I didn't hear Will say anything, and I literally know he's sitting there. It's all right, he's, he's, <laughs> he's asleep, I can hear him snoring. Um, I was doing a play um, years ago, and a friend of mine came to see it, who's uh, a theatre director, who is coming on the podcast, actually, but it's hard to tie him down, um, because he's fucking brilliant. And uh, I came out after, after the play... And was talking to him. Uh, and I don't know how the review conversation came up. And I went, oh, well, I haven't seen, I haven't looked at any reviews. And he went, well, why would you? They're not for you. Yeah. They're not for you. And since he said that to me, I've never fucking read anything. Yeah, that's great. 
Yeah, I'll and try I thought, and get And one. I think it's a really, really important bit of advice. The thing is, if you're a director, see, Nick Payne's a writer and an extraordinary writer. Um, and he, some people would argue, especially as a director, not necessarily a writer, but if you're a director, producer, it's your job. You have to know what people are thinking. That's the theory. But reviews, they, they fuck you up. I, 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 I wrote a show. This, the thing I wrote in 2010, I wrote a show called The Cafe, which was on Sky One. And uh, nobody watched it because nobody watches shows on Sky One. Um, um, but there are four people who watched it and three of them liked it. So we're good. Um, but Quite no, said. it. Uh, <laughs> Very good. Yeah, no, it's. Um, when it came out, it was. Uh, there, there was a preview, uh, like, watch tonight in The Guardian. And The Guardian said, um, this is a, this is a, be- this is a, what is it? This is a perfect show, beautifully pitched somewhere between, um, Gavin and Stacey and what was it then Pinto or something like something like unbelievable I was like wow this is going to be we're going to win BAFTAs and then the Guardian the same paper the next day hated it like crucified it in a way that you've never known and every single other paper every every other one really loved it and what's really funny is to this day even sitting here now talking to you about that I still feel like this creeping kind of hotness of embarrassment and shame about that review that one review and also because I slightly felt like the Guardian's like the paper I read for you know politics and opinions and this and that was like they'll love this and they fucking hated it and you just think it's just not my business I shouldn't have bothered you know people loved it people really really it meant a lot to people and I should just be happy with that but it's the thing isn't it when you create something Certainly, I don't know, I never really think about the the wider appeal or what it could be. It's like, well, if one person likes it, then that's the kind of, you've kind of done your job. Yeah, as I've got older, I've got a lot better at just kind of doing a, 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 a job for the the job's sake for making for making a piece for putting something out there and think hoping that people will respond to it what like for the you're doing something for the right reasons as exactly. in you're doing something for you yeah exactly I mean when I was younger I was very much it was much more mechanical it was much more oh well I hope this is good because then it might lead to this it's like you know what thinking like that's a waste of time but you can't I don't think because you, you know, you've got no control over it anyway well that's the thing Not, isn't it there is there is yeah. zero control it's you know it's a yes or no or it's a exactly. script in your inbox I nearly said, uh, and then he said through the post box. Then <laughs> and that just really shows my yeah, age. Because we're getting old. Yeah. yeah. Someone's come in the post. Yeah, pop it in the post form and get it in two <laughs> no, days. Yeah. No, do you know what? I'll just, I'll just email it to you. You can read it in eight seconds. What? Oh, yeah. What? What? Yeah. what? What? What's a PDF? <laughs> I'm so not technical. It's fucking hilarious. Um, but was acting on the cards when you were at school in well, this sort of prescribed. Procrastination? Um, n- no, it really wasn't actually. It really wasn't. I um, so I told, I told you about uh, Carol Godby. Wow, she's getting loads of mentions. Carol Godby's theatre workshop, um, which is still based in Bury and still going strong. And she, um, that was like an outlet. So I would play football for you know, play football for school on Saturday morning, and then go to her thing on Saturday afternoon. And about six months after I started doing that, when I was twelve. She said, I'm going to set up an agency for kids. And I didn't even know what an agency was. And I was like, all right, <laughs> fine. Then about six months after that, I went for an audition at the Bolton Moat House Hotel. I'll never forget that. <laughs> Why the Bolton Moat House? I had no idea. But I went for an audition. I mean, it sounds a little bit wrong, if I'm honest, Ralph. <laughs> I, 
I say an audition. Ralph, Ralph, yeah. get yourself down Bolton Road's yeah. House Hotel, yeah. room 201, in, not three times. Yeah. Just yeah. remember... Times were different then, you know. You had to do things for work. Um, so, um, like, audition. I went um, on a speed awareness course yesterday, right? About time Please tell me it was at the Bolton Moat House Hotel. It wasn't at the Bolton Moat House Hotel. It was back in Gloucestershire where I live. And uh, one of the instructors talked about it was a different time and then they went it was Jimmy Savile <laughs> and she went I shouldn't really say that but it was Jimmy Savile I went fuck it alright yeah. slightly off topic <laughs> let's get back to the Bolton Malthouse Hotel at we least all need to know what's going on at least when she said that it was private and no one else will find out about <laughs> it um, so um, yes yeah, so I went for, the, for this audition at Bolton Malthouse and it was for this kids you know a crap kids TV show called Sloggers how old were you? 13, uh, 12, 12, 12. Thir- yeah, th- 12, 13, 13, I was 13. Um, and it was about an under-13s cricket team in, uh, in Lancashire um, because that's the stuff that high drama is made of. Um, <laughs> but it was, and this is one for your generation, it was written by Sid Waddell, the darts commentator, who wrote Joss's Giants. So it was basically the cricket... <laughs> yeah. Joss's Giants! Exactly. So I it was, love Joss's Giants. It was like two years later, it was the cricket version of Joss's Giants that fucking nobody watched. That should have flown. That was my... Yeah. Can you imagine how uninteresting that was for kids? But <laughs> I was in it. And that was my TV debut, so... Oh, so you got it? Yeah, yeah. I fucking nailed it. What do you mean? What are you looking so surprised did. about? <laughs> um, I, well, interestingly, I was a better actor when I was a kid. Much better actor when I was a kid. Why Miles you, better. Why do you say that? Fearless. Didn't give a shit. Didn't care when he was just like, oh, there's, there's a line. Well, you know, that's how it should be said. And you say it with such confidence. You get older and you're a bit like, I wonder what they're looking for. I wonder if I should do this. What accent should it be? I wonder what they're thinking about this character. It's like, kid, you just go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Bang. I was miles better. But do you not think that's just children in general? Because um, hands up who's got kids? Can't even see. I don't know why I'm asking for it. <laughs> yeah. nice. But yeah. the thing about children are, um, they are free. They, they, exactly. There's zero, zero judgment. Yep. There was no um, artifice to my if they're, if acting they're, as a kid. If they're at being all. a paleontologist and they're looking for dinosaur bones, they're that. Yeah, exactly. They're like, and oh yeah, I'll just pretend to do this. Them that they're not I'll that. just pretend to do this. That's what I'll be. I'm a kid. I pretend all the time. I pretend to do this. I pretend like, and I was miles better as a kid. So do you think, in some ways, we as we get older, we need to return to that. I think if I wish now that I had that kind of like self-belief and freedom and fearlessness rather than going, oh God, I hope, uh, I, you know, I, I'm not normally seen as this. I hope I get seen as this. I wonder if it's going to be, you know, and just thinking about, I mean, it's great to think about character. That's our job. But like there was a certain freedom to the just don't give a fuckness of being a kid and just, just doing it. Definitely. Do you think that's something that you look at now that you go, Oh well, if if I'm if I do this part, then I'm seen for this. But really, what you should be doing is just playing. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, we just before we came out, Craig and I before we came out, started about twenty conversations, and then after about two sentences, went no 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 no, let's talk about this in the podcast. Like so, we basically like didn't say anything, but nearly said a load of things. He was on his phone going, I'm not talking to Yeah, you. literally just ignored him going, mate, I'm just going to have to be on Twitter. There you go. That's how sad my life is. Um, but, you know, you were talking about a, a, a script that came to you and you said to your agent, look, I don't want to go for this, thank mm. you, because it's what I'm always seen as. 
and I want to move away from that. Well, you know what? When you're a kid, you might have just gone, hey, yeah, I can do that. I can pretend to be that. There's like a, there's a freedom to you. There's just a fearlessness that I miss. But I think, then but again, that's just the modern e world. But even though that's in the past, surely that hasn't gone away. You've just got to kind of find that a bit more. I, I mean, you should. I think. I'll get you to talk to my agent. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. I don't Help know. I out. think we're constantly sort of, you know, yes, we're getting more knowledge as we get older, but some ways we need to regress to find out if we're missing something. Go, oh, well, I was all right then. Why was I... Why was I really free and happy then? What what are the boxes that were ticked there? And no, what it, it, do we have too much? Do I, I've got too much in my life now. Because back then, those summers lasted forever and I yeah. didn't need fuck all. You know, it's really interesting. So there were, because it was a cricket team, so there were 13 of us in that cast, like 11 for the cricket team and two subs, basically. You're talking to somebody who knows nothing about Me neither. sports. Me neither. Uh, well, certainly about cricket. Um, so there were 13 of us in that cast, 13 kids, and uh, one or two have gone on to make a career out of it. One's in Coronation Street now, Jane Danson in Coronation Street. Um, and, and yeah, every one of those kids, there were a couple, if I'm honest, who were a little bit wooden, because I'm not saying every kid can be a great actor, but I do genuinely think that kids who, are, who have a bit of a talent for acting often are just more truthful than... Than, than many of us now who do it for a living. It's true, and, and there's I look a rawness. Back at, yeah, a I look back at them now, well. and, and basically, those kids that were cast looked at the script and went, oh, I need to do this for this scene. Okay, I'll do that. Because they just do it. So yeah, I miss that. Why the hell are we talking about this? How do we get onto this? Why am I talking about being 13 in a TV show? Who knows? It's the podcast, Ralph. It's kind of what we do. I don't, I don't even know how we get there. Uh, we just do. Is everybody all right, by the way? You're all quite quiet. Is everything all right? Yeah. You enjoying it? Yeah. Just having a conversation. It's right. I don't know when we're going to finish. Has anybody got any pressing matters that they need to do? Because this might fucking go on a bit. It's all right. You can say no. If you do, just leave dead quiet. Nice one. Don't leave. He knows where you live. The doors are locked. Um... So that was 13. And you were free then. You felt Oh, that's fine. how we got onto that. Yeah. That's how we got onto that. Because you were saying, was I always going to be in act? Was acting always on the cards? Well, I think so. Yeah. I think what I was trying to get about, I was, you're kind of shying away from your academic record. Oh, yeah. Um, no, it wasn't. So I did that and it was just as a hobby. And then as a hobby, I mean, it seems bizarre to say now, but luckily um, I got that. And then I got like kind of just as a hobby, one, one little job a year, all through my teenage years. So um, an episode of Heartbeat here and a bit of Children's Ward there. And, and this is going up from 13, 14. Exactly. But where did it come from, do you think? The, this thing, because your mum and dad... They're accountants. We're both accountants. <laughs> There's not a lot of uh, performance in that. <laughs> Have you met my accountant? Yeah, well, you know, yeah. Unless they're up in court. It's not Gary Barlow's accountant. <laughs> um... I don't yeah. wish it was, actually. So, um, no, I don't know where it came from. Uh, my, my dad's quite the performer, actually. He's quite a... As a person? Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's quite a character like that. You know, he's always telling jokes and stuff like Confident. that. Confident. Yeah, exactly. But, well, I mean, if we're going really, really far back, I remember being asked to... Um, there's, a, there's a poem from... I think it's Now We Are Six. Do you remember those books when you were a kid? Yeah. 
I think there's a poem from Now We Are Six, and it's called... Is that the A.A. Milne? Yeah. Yeah. And it's called Binker. Do you remember that? that does anybody? No. That's good. Cause Anyone? Because now, now I don't have to say it. Um, and it was about an imaginary friend called Binker. And every... And four or five... And I must have been loud and precocious in class, because otherwise I wouldn't have been handed this thing when I was six years old in infant school. But for the, for the open day for parents coming in, there are five verses to this poem... And I got handed one verse, and that was the one I was going to read. We were going to do it in a line. It was verse three or something like that. And um, I remember taking it home and showing mum and dad, saying, I've got to do this. And my mum and dad immediately going, oh, well, you have to do funny voices. And me going, I don't, I don't want to do funny voices, because all you care about is not being embarrassed at that age. And I remember them kind of bullying me into going, you're going to fucking do some funny voices or you're going to get the back of my hand. But it wasn't quite that. But I mean, I remember tears, tantrums going, I don't want to do it. And eventually just giving in. And my dad coaching me through how I was going to do this one verse of this poem. And, um, and then I did it in front of all the parents. And, you know, verse one was from one of my classmates and it was just normal and then verse two was normal. And then I came in, I was tiny, this tiny little boy because I was really little for years. And I did these funny little voices for this, for this poem, this verse of this poem. And I, the guy got a standing ovation after my verse from the parents. Oh, my classmates must have fucking hated me even at six. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I like this. I can get on board with this applause. And, go, um, so that's where it started. And that's kind of where it started, yeah. yeah. yeah you know, we're all horrible narcissists, us performers. And so uh, it was just nice to get that. I just love the applause, I think. And so I was like, all oh, right, I'm the kid now that does these things. And it just seemed really natural. And were you the youngest in your family? Yes, I was until my brother was born. Until he, he, when, we were, when I was uh, 10. Yeah. And at school, was it a happy time? Did you feel... Because obviously, look, we know you're smart and that comes with... An ease, I think. You know, you talk about the procrastination. There's an ease to that. But was it? Did you go full of beans? Were you enjoying it? Was it a happy time? Good friends, or was it a pain in the ass? Um, it was a bit of both. I, I, I read um, um, Ian and Damon, who wrote uh, who wrote the Inbetweeners. I read an article that that they talked about, which I thought was really, really interesting. And they talked about school, and they were like, everybody says school's supposed to be the happiest time of your life. Um, but it, I just don't see the, the logic of that. And they went on to the... This wasn't necessarily my experience, but I thought what they said was fascinating. Mm. And they went, you know, it's this terrifying swamp of um, social hierarchy, trying to fit in, being criticised for that, being not criticised, you know, not fitting in here, trying to do this there... You know, you're, you're exploding sexually at this point, like... And growing you're, up, you're, you're growing working up, out who you are. You're trying you to work are. out who you are. Your hormones are going absolutely fucking crazy. And there's a genuine, real threat of being physically assaulted on a daily basis by bullies. And you go, yeah, school wasn't actually that great after all. <laughs> um, it actually, you know, uh, that's not in, entirely my experience, but certainly because I went to a very posh school. Um, but certainly the, um, you know, there was no threat of physical assault, but... I don't know, fitting in. Fitting in is so important when you're a kid. Kids' hierarchies are more difficult than probably any other hierarchy you try to fit in for the rest of your life. It's, it's a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Um, uh, and, I, I, like, honestly, I don't know, especially now with social media, I don't know how 
you know, you, you're a parent. Genuinely, that would worry me. It's like, how are they going to cope? And you've just got to do the best you can because they don't tell you stuff. But, um, you know, uh, no, it, it was all right. It was all right. I, I think looking back, my thing at school was I was neither popular nor unpopular. Uh, I just didn't fit in anywhere because I've already alluded to this thing that I did everything. So I turned up and, you know, I played football on the quad for 10 minutes or five minutes before assembly. I went to assembly and then we were in class and I did all right in class. But then I played football at the, and then at lunchtime I'd either, Christ, what would I do? I'd either do badminton training, drama group, choir, you know, any, like all of the activities. And the, so I never had a group. I never had like a, a clique. Because were. you were trying so many different things. I just things. did everything, you know. I was never, I was, I was, I was neither, uh, you know, one of the computer nerds, nor the choir geeks, nor the jock sportsmen, or, or rather, more accurately, I was all of them. And so none of them. Um, Why do you think you were trying to do all of them? Were you looking for what was fitting to you? Or? I just didn't know any other way. I didn't know anything. Remember I said that my, I was, we were always raised with this idea of just... Throwing yourself just in. doing everything. Doing everything. I mean, it's a fucking huge benefit in life. It really is. This idea that you just give everything a go and that you're not sort of scared to try stuff. I'm so, I'm so lucky that they, bless them, they worked so hard, my parents, to, to do that. You know, to just go, oh, I'll have a go at that. Do you still I'll have a go at that. Do you still feel that now? Do you still have that fear? I'm more self-aware of it and with that self-awareness comes a little bit more fear, but I'm you know, practiced enough to get over it. But I have this, this weird thing, this inbuilt thing, and it's, it's not arrogance, even if it sounds like it, so I apologize. But um, when you're brought up like that, you have this inbuilt idea that anything you have a go at, anything you try, you just assume you're going to be good at. Even if it turns out that you're not, you presuppose your own success or your own uh, ability. And if that does sound arrogant, then I, I sort of... I, I offer up the reverse of that, which is if, if you believe going into any given circumstance that you're not going to be good at it, you won't. You probably won't. You be, won't. Yeah. You won't. You know, I, I, I had a... Years ago, years ago, my, my, a mate of mine I was talking... Over 10 years ago, he was talking about his daughter and she was 13. It's a really sweet kid. And he was going, oh, yeah, well, you know, she's, um, well, she's rubbish at maths, aren't you? She, she's never been any good at maths. And it was meant with so much love. And, it was, and I was like... Mate, look, it's not my daughter, but I, I would, you know, just maybe mm. sort of find a way of saying, well, it might not be a strong point, but you're, you're smart. I'm sure you'll pick it up. Because they might not. They might be rubbish at maths. Yeah, but you've got to try and <laughs> throw a bit of confidence Yeah, exactly. Way. You know what I mean? And listen, just because I presuppose I'm going to be good in any given situation doesn't mean I am. There are some things I'm shit at. Darts. I'm rubbish at darts. Every time I go to play darts, I think I'm going to fucking nail this. <laughs> rubbish. There's one going into the plant, one going into the fan. But also, know, there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know? And really you're, in da- you're in danger of, of, of overstepping that mark, too. Like I, yeah. yeah. But no, go on, carry on. <laughs> what are you going to say? Have a sip of your beer. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'll tell you my Tom Hanks story. Get comfortable, everybody. It's going to be a long one. It is a long one. So when I was younger, and I don't do this anymore, when I was younger, a lot of the roles I used to get, I used to walk in and I used to have this, especially when, you remember how I said, like, I was 15 and from 
quote unquote Manchester and you go to London and I was more fucking Mancunian when I first moved to London than I've ever been in my entire life. Yo, all right, when I went to London, I'd walk into like a, a newsagent and go, I'll have a packet of prawn cocktail crisps, mate. Sound. Like, why? Never spoke like that in my entire life. But it was You're just literally sort of, Kathy Burke yeah, coming exactly, back. Exactly. Yeah. Just bristling against kind of being in London. Um, so, you know, that sort of swagger, that late 90s swagger that kind of we all probably did a little bit. And I would walk into auditions and I'd read. That, and I just had this in, innate sense that it was better to walk into an audition and have some sort of person, some sort of memorable thing to you, some sort of personality. Uh, if that was swagger, then so be it. Then it was to just be pleasant but forgettable. I didn't want to be unpleasant, mind. That's not, I want, never wanted to be a dick, but I certainly wanted to walk in with that kind of self-confident, assured thing. And sometimes that, went, sometimes that could go wrong and people could think you're a bit of a dick, but that was the risk that you took. So... Bearing all this in mind, when I think I was, Christ, what would I have been? Maybe like 20 years old in 2000 or something, 2001. Uh, so it had been 20 or 21. They were casting Band of Brothers. Hold on, Will Ash, were you in Band of Brothers? Good. Um, <laughs> he didn't get it either. Excellent. <laughs> Every fucker else did though, didn't they? Um, uh, wait, were you in it? No. Yes, excellent. As long as no one in this room was in it, I'm good. So... I went for this. Uh, <laughs> so I went for this audition for Band of Brothers, and um, there was—I mean, it was—it was a real cattle call. It was every young British actor was in there, and there was something like you know, fifty parts or something. So I walked in, and it was an American audition. And American auditions, as you know, are really—you know—you turn up, and they sort of don't know who you are. They read your name off. It's not like they know you, and they go, "Hey, great to see you." They're like, "Yeah, next, you might as well take a number, like you're at a deli counter or something." So. I walk in and I'm thinking, okay, like remember this kind of swagger sort of thing. In fact, for example, there's like a hundred people in the room waiting to go in and I've got my time slot and they're all reading the script like shaking and dead nervous. And I'm like, I'm not going to be like the rest of them. So I pulled out like Loaded magazine, which, <laughs> which I used to read when I was 20. And I used to pull out Loaded magazine and I'm flicking through like pictures of girls in bikinis and they call my name Ralph Little and I'm like... And I look up and look at the telecom I watch and I go, oh, um, are you sure? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, it's a couple of minutes early. Are you sure, like, there's not somebody else in? Like, you know, a bit of a dick, like, but <laughs> I'm like, all right, yeah, you know, okay, no worries. Like, double mank. Like, yeah, all right, no worries, I'll come in. So I walk and I make, I can't remember what I said, but I make a couple of jokes. And literally within, like, 30 seconds, a bit self-deprecating, a bit like, you know, whatever. And then after about 30 seconds, she goes, um... She's like, well, oh my God, I think you are adorable. I love your sense of humor. I think you're, you're just so great. Would you like to come back in a couple of weeks and meet Tom Hanks? And I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm busy, you know, sure. <laughs> like, what a dick. So anyway, they set the date a couple of weeks later. In between, so I find out that I'm going for, there are 18 parts, sorry, there are nine parts that we're going for, and I'm down to the last 18. So I've literally got a 50, one in two 50% chance of getting a part in this Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, I'm 21. So I, um, so I go to the Athenaeum Hotel on uh, Piccadilly, you know, go into the, knock on the door of the suite, and I'm shaking, nervous. And I knock on the door of the suite, and I knock on the door, and they open it, and I'm thinking, okay, remember how you got here, remember the sort of attitude that you had to come here. And as they open, they go, come in. And I open the door. And the room's like twice the size of this. It's huge, this suite. And right in the far corner, there's like 20 LA execs in suits all sitting around a table. And they sort of look at me like a cockroach who's just walked in. 
And Tom Hanks, bless him, sees me and he leaps up from the table. He comes running across the room. It took him about 20 seconds because the room was so long. And he runs across the room and he's like, hey, Ralph, how are you, man? Thank you so much for coming in. It's great to see you. And I'm like... Well, this is amazing. And he, look, he's obviously only read my name on a piece of paper two seconds ago, but he didn't need to make that effort, you know. No. Comes running over. Ah, great to see you. And he goes, how are you doing? My how are you doing, my friend? Is everything okay? And I'm like, <clears throat> okay, make him laugh. And I go, I'll be honest, Tom. I'm sick to the pit of my stomach. And he goes, oh, God, why? What's, what's wrong? And I go, well, it's a big audition, isn't it? I'm just, you know, just a bit nervous. And he, there's this pause, and time stops. Probably only like a second, but to me it was an eternity. And he goes, oh, I like this guy. He's honest. He turns around to his LA exec. I like this. This guy's honest. I like him. <laughs> nice. And I'm thinking, thank fuck for that. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, you've got your foot in the door. Now just push your advantage home, all right? I'm thinking of anything to say. And he, he's come running over, and he's got this huge grey beard. It's down to his, like, chest. And his hair's all long, because he's filming Castaway at the time. Right. So he's dead thin as well. And I think, trying to think of anything to say, I'm like, hey, uh, nice, sir. I'm still at the fucking door at this point, by the way. I've barely moved. You're not even in. No, I'm not even in the room. And I've gone, nice beardage, by the way. And he goes, excuse me? I said, beardage, nice beardage. And he's like, what? Say what now? And I'm like, and so my heart rate starts going. I'm starting oh. to fucking panic now because he can't understand what I'm saying. And I go, beard, beard, beardage. I'm just saying beardage. It's just a, I mean, your beard. It's a joke word for beard. I mean, I'm just saying beardage. It was like a joke word for... Because you've got a big beard. Nice beard is what I'm trying to say. And bless him, he still tries to bail me out. He goes... Oh, oh, what, this old thing? Oh, sure, sure. It's, it's not even for a part. It's just, uh, it's just you know, fashion. <laughs> I think it looks kind of cool, don't you? And I'm shitting my panicking at this point. And he goes, I think it looks kind of cool, don't you? And I went, I swear, I went, nah, you look like shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did he, did he get the dry northern humour? I mean... Not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And his little face fell. His lovely little generous face fell after he'd done all that effort. And he looked hurt. He looked genuinely hurt. He's like, why has this 21-year-old kid just come in and basically mugged me off? <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, to be honest, I mean, he's Tom Hanks. He can take a joke and whatever. And he probably, he almost certainly, in fact, just laughed and thought nothing of it. And we went and whatever. But all I know is that for the next 20 minutes, I was just sitting there going, you told Tom Hanks he looks like shit. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? That little voice. Fucking awful. (laughs) I don't remember reading. All I remember is being terrible. I just don't remember anything about it. And then I left and was just like, I'll I'll never, ever forget that as long as I live. I didn't get the part. (laughs) So, yeah, there you go. There's actually a funny postscript to that story, which is I told it verbatim to um, about two years later. Sorry, that's my phone falling out of my pocket. That's a sign. That's Tom Hanks's sort of <laughs> telekinetic power. Um, yeah, I, I told this story. I was in a bar with uh, with a couple of, with a friend, and she had two American friends, and I was talking to them, um, and uh, they were over doing a play, and I was chatting to one of them, um, like Jennifer and Colin, they were called, and I was chatting to them. And I told them that whole story, and I said about how nice Tom Hanks had been and everything. And I told him the story and I finished and they laughed. And the guy went, you want to know something that's really funny? And I went, what? He goes, that's my dad. 
I was telling Colin Hanks the story. <laughs> Can you imagine if I called him a cunt? <laughs> Luckily, I didn't. Luckily, I'd gone out of my way to say how nice he was. But yes, that's the very long answer to your question, which was, you know, that kind of confident, arrogant thing. Yes, it can, it can go wrong. Do you think, as you've got older, you've got less like that? Yeah, definitely. But I wish I, I, wish I had a bit of it. And I think I'm, I'm probably a bit apologetic now when I walk into a room. Example? What do you mean? Do you mean like in an audition process? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want to walk into an audition room. What, as in sort of imposter syndrome? Or... A bit, yeah. Which is weird. Because you sound like you've never had imposter no, syndrome the idea, when you were younger. No, the idea of that would have been insane when I was younger. I was so kind of just, yeah, confident. Just, and putting on that sort of just faux sort of absolute bravado, as well. Yeah, absolute bravado. Well, my first professional play I did with Will... Um, I remember walking into that room and we were, scou- we were playing scouters in it, you know, and you should be nervous about that, really, but, um, you know, you're, you're known for being a man, you're doing a scouse accent, but I just kind of assumed it would be fine and, you know, just, oh, you know, I'm, I'm dead good at this, it's going to be fine. And the weird thing is it was, it was. I got an Olivier nomination for Best Newcomer. I would, yeah, I would never walk into a room like that anymore. I'd never walk into a rehearsal room like that anymore. And I think I've probably, in a little way, suffered from it. I work harder now. I work hard on a more diligent, and I think about things more. But I, I do wonder if I've lost a certain, I don't know, rawness. Well, do you not think that just comes with, <coughs> excuse me, um, experience and age? Yeah, I do. Because we all can't be sort of that. that I mean, who knows? Do you know what? Maybe I'm better for it. Maybe I'm better for it. I certainly think I'm probably easier to work with. Then again, a lot of that comes from working behind the camera and going, oh, right, yeah, actors are dicks. <laughs> Do you feel you, that you were ever hard to work with? I didn't think so. I didn't think so. But I look back now and probably, yeah, probably. Uh, so, so working behind the camera was interesting because every single one of the actors who was in the show that I wrote was, was lovely, was genuinely lovely. I haven't got a bad word to say about them. But we as actors, we, we, we have so many conversations with ourselves and we get ourselves, tie ourselves in knots and, you know, it's, we feel that it's a high-pressure situation. In certain ways it is, in certain ways it's not... We can make ourselves difficult when we don't mean to. And until you've witnessed it from the other side, you don't realise how difficult that is. But, you know, when you're an actor and you walk onto a set and every single question you ask is perfectly valid. It's our job to ask questions and make sure we fully understand what we're doing. But every single suggestion we make and, and, and thing we say... This show, this script, was written six years ago. Somebody's been agonising over every comma on this script... For six years. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't ever question a line. You absolutely should. You should be able to question anything because that's the collaborative process. But um, I don't know. It wasn't until I literally went through it and went, oh, right, before actors arrive, actors are the final piece of a very, very complex puzzle. And yet, from the moment we arrive, we're made to feel like we're the most important piece of the puzzle. In fact, we're the whole picture. It's which, just not the case. Yeah, which I kind of think's wrong. Yeah. I think that's why. Yeah. I mean... Uh, that's why actors turn into yeah. a, a certain type of person. I don't think it's their fault. No, I think uh, it's the other people's. Yeah, fault. I mean the industry's set up t- to do that. Um, yeah, but I and, must, and I it, must admit, it would be nice if it changed. I can count on one hand those types yeah. that I've worked with in, in, yeah. in twenty-one years. Easy uh, types who are hard work. 
or types who aren't hard work. Well, yeah, because uh, because there, there are, I there suppose. Are. Well, I have to say, as, as easy as it is to sort of slag off, that actually, when you then start to realise it, you realise that most people are just they're just nice, normal people who this exactly. is their job. And yeah, yeah. Um, is everyone, does everyone mind excusing me while I go for a wee? Because I'm going to fucking piss my pants. Right, we're just going to take a little short break here uh, while Ralph... It's all right, don't worry. He's had about seven before we started. Um, what time are we on, Griff? 20, Crikey, O'Reilly. We haven't even got to the meat and bones of it. Is everybody all right? Does everybody else want to go to the loo? Um... Just come down here. It's quite bright. Is everybody enjoying it? Is it all right? It's quite a nice conversation, isn't it? Um, I, I've never... I met Ralph a few years ago. I say maybe about, about eight, eight years ago. We worked together very, very briefly on a job. I'm not sure he remembers. <laughs> don't, don't, don't tell him. I'm being genuinely serious. Um, but this is the first sort of sit-down, proper, in-depth conversation um, I've had with him. Um, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Go on. Don't we have to tiptoe? It's fine. Don't he's not here. Be quick, like, because I'm going to start again, William Ash. I see you. God, this is a fucking long podcast, isn't it? You right, kid? He knows his free beers backstage. That's why he's going... <laughs> Um, do you know what time it is? No. 20 past nine. <laughs> I'm not making the uh, 9.15 train back to London. Did you say 20 past nine? <laughs> Did you say 20 past nine? God. We're having fun. Do you know what? Is, is this horribly right? self Is, is everybody it, good? Yeah. Is this Thanks horribly so self-indulgent or is anybody actually now, interested in Do you know what? This? Ralph, I was saying um, to Ralph before he came on, he said, I'm just worried that I'm going to talk too much. I said, everybody thinks that. Everybody's nervous, but that's what a podcast is. It's a convers. Well, certainly our podcast it's a conversation. You, you can't not say anything um, bad or too much. But what I want to know: when did being a doctor come into it? Oh, right. So, um, so um, uh, through school. So uh, even though I was doing kind of one job a year as a teenager and getting a bit of acting work, it was only ever it was only ever a hobby. The, which sounds weird because I would have loved to have been an actor. And, you know, people say things like, you know, follow your dreams and all that. And I talk about how I was given this idea that I could do anything. And yet I also had parents that were very, very conservative with, with a small C. Um, it, it, they would, if I'd have said, I want to be an actor, then they would have gone, well, son, that's fantastic. Of course you can. Yeah. But it never even occurred to me to say it because I was very conservative and uh, conservative-minded and um, an academic. And I, my parents raised me as, as they, you know, as a lot of parents, a certain type of parent does. I was either going to be a doctor or a lawyer and doctor was the only thing I wanted to do. Um, and I, I, you know, I would have loved it. I was fascinated by it. Um, so that's what I thought I was going to do. And acting was just a hobby on the side. And also not to... I was never brave enough to contemplate the idea of leaving school, going to drama school, and then leaving drama school and going, well, I hope, you know, doing the grind. I was never brave enough to go, okay, well, I'll get a temporary job here and there, and I'll audition for stuff and hope for the best. Um, 
it sound I, I worry that that sounds kind of conceited in some way, but I just I didn't have the balls for that. I didn't have the stomach for it. Um, so I was like, it's a nice idea, but I'm not prepared to take that chance. Yeah, I'll um, I'll do something that I will be interested in, and and that's a much safer bet. So yeah, that was it. I was so I did my so I actually took September '97. We filmed the Royal Family. I was 17, and we filmed that till December '97. So for three months, yeah. So for three months, I took I took three months out of my final A level year, um, having applied to medical school to do this show that I got had got cast in, and then I was like, okay, well we finished filming, so with a bit of luck, it'll be out in January or February, and I can see whether you know there's a a response to it, and maybe I can make a decision as to whether. I can give acting a go. But they shelved it for reasons unknown. They shelved the Royal Family for nine months till September 98. The exact same week as I started medical school. No. Yeah, literally. So I started medical school on the Monday. And I think, I think the first episode went out on the Thursday. It was very strange to be going in as a student going... Reading in all the papers going, there's this show, there's this show. But of course, none of this... It wasn't like I walked into the Stortford building across the road or literally this building. Yeah. And people were going, hey, no way, because of students don't, weren't watching it. Students were out getting pissed. So it was weird. It was this weird kind of dual life of going, I'm suddenly in this thing that everyone's talking about. And literally all the change, it's like it would be easy to say that my life changed overnight. It didn't. Um, instead of suddenly being recognized on the streets, that didn't happen. Instead of suddenly being offered a load of parts, that didn't happen. All that changed was, instead of waiting six months to go to an audition as a child actor with hundreds and hundreds of other kids and hoping for the best, suddenly, casting directors were seeking me out and saying, we'd love to meet you to chat about this part. Um, and suddenly I would have three, four auditions a week, uh, which was a massive change. And, and I was basically like, if I don't give this a go, I'll regret it for the rest of my life. In fact, I actually used to say, I don't want to turn around when I'm 40 and think what might have happened. Yeah, and that, what seemed, if, what if. that seemed a long way away. And it's two years away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was 20 years ago. I, I had that conversation with myself. And what's really weird is um, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that this was going to happen. So I'd started medical school and suddenly I was getting three or four auditions a week or two or three auditions a week and getting that train from Piccadilly down. You know, you walk into it, you get the train, you get the tube, you don't know London, you walk into an audition, they see you for three minutes and you go, thank you, bye. And then you get the train back up. It's a a hell of a hustle when you're that age. But um, I also needed time off lectures to do it. But I knew I couldn't say to this medical school, hi, I've just started, but um, I'm so disinterested in this course that I'd like to fuck off to London four days a week to go and uh, go to auditions. So I had to keep telling them that I was ill. But when you're telling lecturers at a medical school that you're ill, they ask you what symptoms you've got, and you suddenly realise <laughs> that you're in all sorts of trouble, making shit up, and they're going, you need to get to the hospital immediately. You sound like you're about to die. You know, I'd be going, oh, I'm sweating, and... Uh, feel a bit nauseous and vomiting and you know I've got a headache and they're like you've got stage 4 meningitis we need to really know it was bad so I probably learnt more from working out what illness I was going to tell them um, than I did actually at med school so I lasted um, I think four weeks four weeks so anything you need to know about yeast infection of the gums I can tell you because that's all I learnt but so I'm a, up after yeah, I'm, a, yeah, I'm a very specifically qualified medic. <laughs> I know about that, although I've forgotten it all anyway. So yeah, that's how that happened, and and that's it, it, also how I quit. Um, so yeah, quit being a doctor. 
And for all that, you know, they were like, you can do anything you want. My mother was furious. Was she? <laughs> yeah. Well, she was. She wasn't. She wasn't. They were. They. They. They intellectually were like, it's entirely your decision. We'll back you whatever you want. And they emotionally were like, what are you thinking? This is insane. <laughs> um, but my brother's a doctor anyway, so they got one. So my mum's fine with it. Do you know what I'm going to do? Because I'm really enjoying talking to you. Yeah. Um, I want to do this again, but I want to do a part two. I want to do it in London. Part, podcast part two. Because we've got, I think we've... We've spoken so much, but I think we've only just skimmed the surface. I, I think did tell should... you I can. Crap That's on all right. For a long I know, time. but there's no problem. But I'm really aware of uh... people want a beer. <laughs> no, but the amount of time that people are investing in this, and and you know, we I know we could go on for another two hours. That's not a problem. But I don't think we should. What I think we should do, me and Ralph should pick it up in London, and we should do a part two. But I just I want to do two things. I want. I want to ask you one more question, and sure. then I want to just sort of throw it open to the audience. Does that sound all right? Does that sound like a good thing to do? Yeah. Yeah. Are you sure? You don't sound very sure. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because otherwise, if we're here till midnight, fucking like, oh, crack on. Yeah, I'm starting. Yeah, I'm starting to feel um, a little. But I want to ask you a question that, and I very, I never really ask the same uh, questions that much because everybody's kind of different. But I nicked one from um, Marianne Hobbs, and. Um, she ends some of her interviews this way, and I kind of want to put a pause on this with this question to you. Are you happy? <laughs> oh, wow. It's literally the most profound question I've ever been asked in an interview. Um, y- broadly speaking, yeah. Broadly speaking, yes and no. Yes and no. I think we'll leave it there, Ralph okay. Little. <laughs> Why don't, Thank why, you very much. Why don't we pick that one up next time? Let's pick that up there. Okay. Will you please put your hands together for the amazing Ralph Little? Thank you. And another episode is done. Well, yeah, it's sort of done. We'll definitely have a part two with Ralph. We've got much more ground to cover. Um, yeah, I mean, thank you so much for everybody that, that turned up for the festival with Ralph. And thanks to Ralph, because you know what? He doesn't live in Manchester. He got the train up, um, so he made a really big effort to come, and it was lovely to chat with him. See, the thing is, I worked with Ralph many, many years ago. We were both much, much younger, and we didn't really hang out on the job. We didn't get to know each other at all. So it was really interesting um, hopefully for both of us. It certainly was for me and definitely was for the audience. I loved it and I can't wait to sit down and chat with him and we will do that in uh, in January, hopefully. So there's not too much of a break. Now, speaking on, next week is episode 65. Well, I say it's episode 65, but it sort of is, but it isn't. I didn't want to say this at the beginning, but I've got a bit of news. We don't actually have a full episode for you next week. I know, don't, 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 don't be like that. Through no fault of our own. Well, apart from losing Natasha Dimitri's episode. Um, we've been both so very busy, myself and producer Griff, and we don't get a chance to get together again until the 21st and 22nd of November. Right, so not that long. We're only going to miss one week. But last night, 
I recorded something, and that's going to be the episode next week. Now, look, don't get your hopes up. It's not massive. I want to say massive. It's not long in length. It's a few minutes. It's about four or five minutes. But it's something I think is very beautiful. And it's something that if you're in a, a bad place or a bad mood or something's happened, wait. Just wait, right, until you're at the peak of ferociousness and anger or or you're not feeling great. And then play this. Play this next week. The very, very small nugget of beauty that is episode 65. And yes, it's not a conversation with somebody. I'm sorry. It's beyond our control, but it is something really lovely. Um... And it's something you can keep, download it, and then when you're feeling a bit stressed or whatever, just slip your headphones in, play that, and normal service will resume. I promise you, I cannot stop listening to it. And I've, I, I let three people listen to it last night after I recorded it, and the smile on their face just grew and grew and grew. So look, oh... There we go. There's the cathedral bells telling me I'm going to uh, get out of your ears now. Look, thank you so much for being here and downloading. And go and tell your friends. Go and support us by telling your friends. Um, And you know we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that, at Two Shot Pod. Oh, also, the um, get your your moments in for the best of, the Christmas best of. We've had some amazing ones. Maybe hold off on the Carl Pilkington. We've had a lot of Carl Pilkington, and we can't just have a half an hour of Carl as much as we would like to. Maybe we should get Carl back on next year. That one might be a good idea, yeah? Um, so, look, keep them coming in. They're brilliant. I think it's going to be an absolute cracker of a best of. So, uh, yeah, you can... Uh, direct message those to Twitter or you can email twoshotpod at gmail.com and we'll uh, get cracking on that. I will see you next week for episode 65, sort of. Okay, lots of love. Have a great week. Take care of yourself and I'll see you then. Until then, I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been producer Griff and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. Cheers. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. Cheers.